Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, folks, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 3 this morning. Now, the last couple of weeks, this Game of Thrones has gotten really interesting. If you remember, uh, the people of Israel came to Samuel, the prophet, and said, uh, we don't want you anymore as our leader. We want a king. In fact, we are rejecting God. But by the way, can you ask God to give his holy stamp of approval on this? And so Samuel goes before God. God says, give them what they want, but make sure you, you let them know exactly what a king will do. And then last week, through our very weighty historical narrative text that we worked through three chapters last week, uh, some of you are like, ooh, glad I missed that one. Uh, we, we, we now have the first king of Israel, the first crown king, a man named Saul. And while Saul is everything ideally that the world would say would be a good king, he's tall, he's good looking, he's a great warrior, we're going to find this week and in the weeks to come that Saul is a bumbling idiot. <laughs> But it begins with this text today that highlights his son Jonathan instead of Saul. We see this comparison, and we'll see this as we move forward, comparing David to Saul again and again, seeing a character of a person who seeks after God's heart and a character of a person who seeks after their own heart. But some time has passed since we last encountered our text from last week. Many years have passed, actually. Saul has kind of rooted himself. He's raised an army. He has placed several garrisons across the tribes of Israel. And in our text for today, this morning is going to take place between two uh, 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 adjacent hills where the, the army of the Philistines is resting as a garrison and then the, the army of Israel, about 600 men are resting. And there, Jonathan, Saul's son, has been put in charge. But we're going to quickly learn is that this is an awkward moment because the Philistines have put this a major thumb of dominance over Israel. In fact, they've put such an arm of dominance that they have refused to allow anyone else in Israel to own a weapon. Literally, the only people that wield a sword in this time is Jonathan, the son of Saul, and Saul himself. This is how much the Philistines have, have dominated the people. If you wanted to get a farming tool sharpened, you had to go to the Philistines and they sharpened the tool for them. The idea is, you don't have weapons of war, you can't rise up against us. And so what we're going to learn quickly about Saul's leadership in this is that he's a coward. Saul is a coward. He has been placed as God's chosen king. He is supposed to be fighting the wars of Israel for them, yet he's doing nothing. In fact, he's such a coward that he doesn't say anything or act in such a way that all these men are beginning to desert the camp so that this garrison of about a thousand people is left with only 600 people. But someone needs to act. Someone needs to do something and that someone is not going to be Saul. It's going to be his son, Jonathan. Take a look at the second part of uh, verse 3, uh, where it begins with, No one was aware. It says, No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes. The other was called Seneth. 
One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Just in case you need a clarification on that, you can seek your Bible dictionary and what that means. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead and I am with you heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then, we will cross over towards and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there and we will come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that is our sign from the Lord that he has given them into our hands. History has some endless examples of how the power of fear can drive into the hearts of people and begin to spread like a plague. And there's no other greater time than that of early the German days of Adolf Hitler where fear began to spread among the people because of the military might at this time. And so while people knew what was going on in Germany, they said nothing. In fact, Pope Francis recently came out and, and he, he issued a second apology from the Catholic Church saying that we should have acted. That our brothers and sisters in Christ should have said something, should have done something. And it was his predecessor, Pope John Paul, that came out in the 1990s and said, We deeply regret the error and failures of the church to not act, to not move. And of course, many did act, but oftentimes it was, it was too late. And one of the more famous quotes comes from Martin Niemöller, uh, who was a German anti-Nazi uh, pastor and philosopher at the time. And he spoke out uh, after the war and said this, They came first for the communists, and I did not speak up because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the trade unionist, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I'm not a Jew. And then they came for me. And by that time, there was no one left to speak up. See, inaction is an act of apathy and indifference. As one author put it, complacency is nothing but an awesome trigger of mediocrity and failure. That's Israel in this moment. Israel is so driven by fear that they have come to a place of complacency and indifference where they will not move. The king is not moving. The people are not moving. Literally everyone is apathetic to the Philistines taking over them except one man. One man who had the courage to act among indifference. And that's Jonathan in this moment. That's the first thing we can learn about Jonathan is he is a man of courage. He's a man of courage that is standing against the tide of mediocrity and apathy among his people to say, I will not stand for what's happening. I will not let the Philistines continue to dominate us. I will not sit here and do nothing like everyone else. And so he has the courage to act among indifference. And he does. I love this amazing thing. His first act is to go against this entire tribe of people that's literally doing nothing. They're hiding in their tents and their caves. And then he has to climb down one crazy ravine and climb up another ravine. And then he's going to face off against an entire garrison of people. That's acting in courage against indifference difference. And I love what he says to his armor bearer. And the armor bearer basically says to him, giddy up, let's go do this. And so the two guys go down the hill and they wait for the sign that this is how it will work and act. See, I wonder if we can examine this text and begin to see maybe ourselves among the tribe of Israel, that we live sometimes in pockets and, and maybe weeks and years of complacency in our lives. 
begins as making our life a little bit easier in circumstances quickly comes to a lifestyle of complacency. And that pours out into our work, into our families, into our physical and mental health, into our relationships. Every single day, you and I are faced with the mentality to not act, to not move, to not change, to go with the status quo, to not rock the boat, to do what is easy and popular. And so this complacency begins to not only take root in our decisions, but it begins to take root in our very soul. And once a thought, once a mindset has taken root within our soul, then it begins to affect every aspect of our life. And soon we have a mindset of apathy and mediocrity. The great Donald Miller writes this, Humans are designed to seek comfort and order. And so if they have comfort and order, they tend to plant themselves, even if their comfort is not all that comfortable, even if it sees clearly that this is not the best thing for them. And so sometimes at the core of our existence is this unfocused, uninspired, unmoving aspect of our life where we have no growth, no development, no true vision, no true advancements. And unfortunately, complacency blinds us from, from the growing encampment of Philistines around us. The things begin to croach in around us, and soon we have an enemy around us that is filled of obscurity and selfishness, of gratification, of nothingness, of worthlessness, of meaninglessness, of wastefulness of our lives. In complacency, it closes our ears and covers our eyes from the real calling we have in life, which is to follow Jesus in the life and work of his ministry. And apathy and laziness, when it flows through our veins, it keeps us from seeing the hurts of our community. It blinds us from seeing the brokenness of the world and causes us to just look within our lives, our problems, our issues each day. And since the church is made up of people, the church can become a a community of complacency. Why do you think so many churches are so focused within themselves? Maintaining what they have, taking care of their members, forgetting that the work of God is outward-looking and inward-looking. Why do you think so many churches are ravished with infighting and drama and selfishness and, and, and petty distractions and power struggles? Because we become so complacent in who we are as individuals that we're not growing spiritually in Christ, that we become consumed with things that will not matter tomorrow, and all of a sudden the church is ravished by this, and that becomes our focus. That's where our energy goes, on solving issues that will not matter tomorrow, because we become a people of selfishness. That's Israel. That can be the church. And so immediately we're to learn from Jonathan that sometimes there is one person that can stand against indifference. One person who will stand against apathy. Is that us? Are we like Israel in this moment? But what we learn from Jonathan is something significant. is that he has courage. He has courage that is rooted in his faith. The only reason that Jonathan has courage in this moment is his courage through faith in God. All this comes back to God. What does he say? He says, if this is what the Lord desires for us, then it will happen. If the Lord doesn't desire it, so be it. That's where his, his faith is grounded. That's where his courage is grounded. It's grounded first in his faith. Jonathan has this idea that I need God to be in the process of what's happening. God needs to be the one that's guiding my steps in this. Now, it's important for us to understand that this, this story can often be used as an endorsement for fighting in holy wars. 
In fact, this is a struggle of the Old Testament as a whole because there's a lot of holy war in there. There's a lot of God talk around this whole, you know, like murdering thousands of people at times. So we need to be very mindful not to use this text for this. It's part of the time and age. But Jonathan, we learned something about his courage. It's in faith that, that God is going to make things happen. And Jonathan clearly says, this is for the glory of God, not for myself. This is for the benefit of God, not for me. So be it if this is what God desires for me. And so here's an example that Jonathan gives us. That that faith is something that moves. And so the question I want us to wrestle with right now in this moment is, do we truly have faith or is it just chatter in our lives? Is faith just talk, or is it a reality in our lives? Let that settle in for just a second. Is faith just talk, or a reality in your life? You see, do we act as a result of our faith, or do we act and put holy talk on it in retrospect? How often do we make a decision, we we make something happen, and then later we say, oh, God was a part of that. We just put that holy chatter on there. Or is God at the beginning of the process? Is God the one guiding our steps? Is God the one that we are consulting from the very second an idea is conceived in our mind? Are we bathing that in prayer or are we doing it afterwards, giving in that holy talk? There's a difference between talking about faith and there's a difference between that and living it out. That's what we learned from Jonathan in this moment. Look at verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we will teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into our hands. Look at that confidence in God. Verse 13 says, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. I don't know why they say that as opposed to like, what else? was he climbing with like his spider hands i don't know what they're saying that moment it says with his armor bearer to his right behind him the philistines fell before jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed him killed behind him verse 14 says in that first attack jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre then a panic struck the whole army the philistine army those in the camp and in the field those in the outpost and the raiding parties and the ground shook it was a panic sent by god on April 26, 2013, Aaron Ralston was hiking in the Blue John Canyon of Utah when he fell down a ravine where a rock pinned his arm against the ravine wall. And for three days, Ralston was in this ravine, literally fighting against the elements, dehydration, and hypothermia. And it came to that breaking point, that point where he said, either I simply die Either I kill myself or I somehow find a way to free myself and get out of here. So Ralston, taking his multi-purpose tool, cut off his arm at the forearm, climbed out of the canyon, and found safety. Lincoln Hall was mistakenly left for dead on Mount Everest. You see, he had reached the summit with his companions, and and when they got to the summit, they noticed that Lincoln was completely out of it. In fact, they thought he was dead. For two hours, they tried to resuscitate him to no avail, and they had to climb down because of the weather, and the thought was, the next morning we will climb back up and retrieve his body and bring him back down to camp. But what they didn't anticipate is when they got up the next morning and climbed up, there was Lincoln sitting cross-legged, wide awake and wide alive. 
I love stories of facing impossible odds. Crazy moments like this. And that's what Jonathan is facing in this moment. Think about this. He had to leave an entire camp behind. He had to climb down a ravine and up another ravine. And then he fights a garrison of Philistines with just him and his armor bearer. Now, we know that he killed 20, but we don't know how many more were there. We can just say it was 30 against 2. It was a suicide mission. But what we learn about Jonathan's courage is this, is that courage rooted in faith causes us to stand up, to face against impossible odds. Is that the type of faith you have in courage? Is that the type of faith that, that builds this courage within your life to face off against things that no one else is willing to face off against? That's what we find when we have genuine faith in God. It doesn't mean that you and I have to have this huge amount of faith, this this faith that everyone can see. Jesus says what? If you have faith as small as a what? As small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move here to there. But when we have faith, when our courage is built within God, we can face off against impossible things in our life. And we faced impossible things each day, don't we? We face impossible things in our work, in our finances, in our family, in our relationships, in our career moves, in, our, in the crisis, in the conflict, in the investments, in our theology, in our mindsets, in our life patterns, in our burdens and stress, in the unknown, in the uncertain. But when we can have courage in God, we can face that with a God who is certain, a God who is unconquerable. You see, we need to stop depending on our strength, our own insight, our own wisdom, our own courage, our own fortitude, and begin to, to, to trust in the Lord that is called the rock of our salvation. That's how impossible odds are met head on. In the early 1500s, the church was much like it is today. It was a time of theological upheaval. There were so many questions, so many things going on, raging on within the church as the church was trying to work through itself. And one particular man began to read the scriptures and what he was seeing in the practices of the church of the day didn't line up with what he was reading in scripture. This man was named Martin Luther. And Luther began to to draft this document of 95 arguments or 95 theses against the practices of the church at the time. And this monk, this priest decided what he would do is he would nail it to the church in Wittenberg, Germany, so that the church can begin to have a conversation about these challenges he had against him. What he didn't anticipate is that when he nailed that document against the church wall, they would ultimately excommunicate him. In other words, they would quote, in their mind, take away his salvation. What he didn't anticipate is that it would start a revolution. And the revolution that Martin started that day formed into what we know as the Protestant Reformation, why the church is the church it is today of so many different practices, so many different denominations and thoughts. You see, when we can have courage, sometimes we can start a revolution. When we can stand against the tide of indifference in our life and sometimes in the church, we can start a revolution. It spurs and inspires people on. What we're going to quickly learn in this text is that Jonathan's suicide mission is going to inspire the entire army of Israel to stand up and fight against the Philistines in this moment. All because of one man's faith. All because one man said, I am going to stand against indifference. And so courage can start a revolution. Because that's why courage is so contagious. As much as fear is contagious and can fill our hearts and a community of people, so too can faith. How 
How has there been times in your life, and I know there's been times in my life, where I've learned from the faith of others. Someone else's faith has, has prodded me, has inspired me, has, has pushed me down the path. That's why faith is not a solitary journey. That's why we journey together in a community. Sometimes it requires that you inspire me and I inspire you and these people inspire us together as a whole. But we have to have courage to stand against indifference and it can start a revolution. Any of y'all uh, ever watched the uh, ESPN 30 for 30 uh, documentaries? It's a brilliant documentary series. And there's one particular one that I love the most, and it's on the, um, the Florida football program, Florida University football program from back in the 1960s. So if, if you know anything about Florida, from uh, the time you reach May to, like, October, uh, when you enter into the state, you literally have to bring a knife and cut through this thing called humidity, and you just, like, swim through it. It's absolutely terrible in Florida this time. Imagine that, and imagine practicing and playing football in Florida in that time frame. And so the Florida football coaches were so tired of their players passing out from dehydration and all the results of dehydration. And so they they asked the science program of the school to begin to develop some sort of solution for them in this. And so uh, there was a doctor, Dr. Robert Cade, began began to put his scientists at work and they put this magic elixir together that they began to give the college students, the football players, they began to give them renewed energy to hydrate them again. You know it as Gatorade. And what we now know in the past is that our body needs electrolytes. Our body needs water. Our body needs calories in order to function and push through. When I ran a marathon a couple years ago, every two to three miles, they had a station of water and Gatorade and calorie like gel packs for you to eat. Why? Because your body needs it to push it forward. Now, what does that have to do with our text? Now, as as the army of Israel is beginning to rise up and they're going to rush at the Philistines, Saul, in all of his greatness, decides, here is a holy oath we're going to put before God. No one is allowed to eat or drink anything today before we defeat the Philistines. So you can imagine what begins to happen to the army of Israel. Although they have this massive tide that's going against the Philistines, uh, hand-to-hand combat is probably one of the hardest aerobic exercises you can do. Imagine constantly pulling up a shield, slashing at, dodging spears and swords and all types of things. So the men become tired, but they can't replenish themselves. They can't refuel themselves because Saul has put this absolutely idiotic oath on all of the men. Jonathan didn't hear about the oath. And so as Jonathan is fighting, he comes across this honeycomb and dips his staff in the honey and begins to eat it. He doesn't know that he just broke his father's oath. But the first thing we can learn about Saul in this text is that Saul is an irrational leader. Saul makes absolutely irrational and stupid decisions. Why, in the name of all things sacred and holy, would you tell your army they cannot refuel their bodies as they are fighting against the tide of their enemy? It has got to be one of the dumbest military decisions in human history, what Saul just did. But that's what we learn about Saul. And this is not the first, and it will not be the last time that we learn about Saul making irrational decisions. We skipped over a text last week where Saul was given specific instructions by the prophet Samuel. Do not go into battle until I have come and I have made the sacrifice. Well, Saul got impatient. So he decides that he would make the sacrifice. And upon making the sacrifice, Samuel shows up and you know what he says to Saul? This right here is why God... God is taking the crown from you. Amy will get more into this in next week's conversation as we enter 1 Samuel chapter 15. So this will not be the last time that Saul makes dumb mistakes, irrational, stupid mistakes. But what 
begins to happen in our story is they do fight against the Philistines, and eventually evening does come. And this is where Saul will make his second irrational decision. The men are tired. They're exhausted. So they begin to kill the animals that they stole from the Philistine camp, and they begin to eat. But, but Saul, putting on his self-righteousness, looks at the men and begins to scold them because they did not properly sacrifice in the way that the laws of Moses tell them to do. Just a little facet about self-righteousness. Most people are self-righteous because they're trying to cover up some of the mistakes of their own life. They're trying to make up for the mistakes they have done against God. And that's Saul in this moment. But a funny thing happens. is that God begins to speak. God begins to move. And the army is not allowed to move forward. And Saul senses that something is wrong. And so he brings in the priest and asks the priest to pray before God and to cast lots to decide what has happened. Who has sinned against the people? Not knowing that his very son was the one that broke the oath. Any of y'all big YouTube people enjoy watching things on YouTube? There's a guy named uh, Roman Atwood. He's apparently like a YouTube celebrity. He's got his own uh, channel and all this stuff. But this guy is known for pranking. So he decided that he was going to pull a prank on his girlfriend of five years. And so they went on a trip to Aruba to celebrate their five-year anniversary together. And he hid a camera in their room. And this was his brilliant idea. He was going to confess to his girlfriend that he had been cheating on her for the last year. Camera's rolling. He gets her in there. This huge prank is set up and he begins to tell her and she just begins to absolutely sob. I mean, you can imagine somebody telling you on your anniversary trip that you've been cheated on. And in her words of tears, she begins to babble on something and he stops and asks her, what did you just say? And she begins to tell him that the reason she's crying is because she feels so guilty because she has actually been cheating on him for the last year. And he knows the camera is rolling. He cannot believe this moment that, that this is completely backfiring on him. And then she begins to die and laughter telling him she saw the hidden cameras the joke is on him the whole time that's what's about to happen to Saul in this moment you see Saul thinks I'm going to bring the holy people in we're going to cast these lots these holy dice to see who's made the mistakes and so Saul has the men line up on one side and he and Jonathan line up on the other side and they have the priests cast the lots to decide who is the one who's in the fault here and it says in verse 41 then Saul prayed to the Lord and the God of Israel why have you not answered your servants today, if it is the fault of me or my son Jonathan, respond in Urim and Torum. But if it is the men of Israel at fault, respond with Torum. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. What we learn about Saul in this story is this Saul is an idiot. He thinks, I'm going to cast lots. The the army of Israel is going to be at fault here. My son and I are going to be relinquished here. Everything is going to be fine. But when the lots are cast, who does it point out is wrong? The holy family. So what happens next in verse 42 is it said that the lots are going to soon be cast between Jonathan and Saul. And this is what happened in verse 42. Saul said, cast the lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little bit of honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said to him, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who was brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground. For he did today with the help of God. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. The 
last thing we can learn about Saul's leadership in this story is this. Saul is spiritually inept. He's an idiot. He thinks that he's doing these things in the name of God, and they completely backfire on him. He puts this, this, this stupid oath on the men to not let them refuel themselves. And if somebody breaks that rule, then that person is going to die. Then he makes the spiritual mistake of thinking that if we cast these lots between the men and my family, that the men will be at fault here. Then the lots are cost. And then it begins to fall on, on Saul and his family himself. And so he's faced with this decision. Well, I made this oath. My son Jonathan has to die. How more spiritual? Spiritually moronic could Saul be? This great victory, and Saul wants to ruin it by killing his son. The last thing I want us to learn from this text is this. Is that courage really does require faith. Because this story is not necessarily about Saul's stupidity. The story is about Jonathan. And here is Jonathan. He faced impossible odds. He had this courage that was rooted in his faith in God. And little did he know that he was going to have to have courage to face off against his own father. His own father that wanted to put him to death for what? For tasting honey in the middle of battle. I'm telling you, Saul is like the biblical idiot. He's the village fool. What do we have in this moment? Jonathan has courage. He says to his father, do what you have to do. But who is it that saves Jonathan? It's not his father. It is the entire army of people. This is why I said that that your faith and courage can start a revolution. The entire army of Israel literally stood between Jonathan and his father so that Jonathan wasn't killed. He had inspired the men so much with his acts of courage and faith that the entire army of Israel literally is usurping the king. They're literally standing against their king saying, this is a dumb decision, Saul. Don't make this happen. That's why faith needs to be rooted within our courage. It requires courage to have faith. It requires faith to have courage. And so as we close out our conversation this morning, I want you to begin to think about what kind of indifference are you facing in your life? What areas of your life do you need courage right now? Is it standing against indifference and apathy among your family, among your friends, among a, a community of people, among your workplace? Is it courage to, to go down a ravine and up a ravine knowing that at the top of that ravine you are going to face off against some sort of army? Some sort of band of people or conflicts or stress in your life that is standing against you. What do you need courage in right now? And can you come to a place this morning, like Jonathan, where you don't try to act on your own will, your own wisdom, your own strength, your own courage, but instead you fall back to the best source of all that courage, and that is a faith rooted in God. So may the courage of Jonathan inspire us. May the Spirit of God increase our faith to face off against anything that comes our way. May we walk with Jesus, doing what is right and impossible, but possible with an impossible God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the story of Jonathan. The story that challenges us to begin to look within ourselves to see what level of courage we have. And God, may the result be, if we lack courage, may it not be to read some book, to, to listen to some podcast, to have some conversation there. But God, may the courage source come from us maybe getting on our hands and knees and praying. Praying that you increase our faith. That if we just had the faith of a mustard seed, you can inspire us to face off against impossible things. 
sometimes that courage might mean we have to stand against family. We might have to stand against friends. We might have to stand against people who don't understand us. But we are are living this out out of conviction. But God, help us to look beyond ourselves this morning. To see that the faith you have instilled within us, the great task you are calling us to, is not just for our own faith. But it's for the faith of the people around us. To be inspired. To be lifted out of mediocrity and apathy. And to be bolstered forward into something wonderful you have in store for us. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.